This is Mormon Awakenings. My name's Jack Nanique. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. Most of you know who Pablo Picasso is, but for those who don't, and there's no shame, by the way, if you don't know who Pablo Picasso is. That's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is not about shame. So I'm glad I got that off my chest. Anyways, if you don't know who Pablo Picasso is, he's the guy who does those weird drawings that look like line drawings with noses pointing the wrong way and two eyes on the wrong side of the face. He's that guy. Of course, describing him that way gives him short shrift because Pablo Picasso is perhaps the most well-known and successful modern painter of the 20th century. And his paintings now go for millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they're very abstract. They're very strange looking in my view. And throughout his career, they became progressively more abstract and more primitive. So that by the end of his life, he was painting like a child would. In fact, the reaction you often hear from people as they're looking at Picasso's, particularly his later work, is, oh, my my kid could do that. What's so special about that? It looks like a five-year-old did it. You know, okay, fair enough. I'm not here to debate the merits of his work. But I point out some of his later work in particular because what people, what a lot of people don't know about Pablo Picasso is that he was a master painter. In fact, by the time he was 17, 18, 20 years old, he was the greatest painter of his generation. He said himself, I could paint like Rembrandt by the time I was 15 or 16. And this was because he was talented, of course, but also because his own father was a painter and had trained him from a very early age. Trained him strictly in color, composition, all the artistic theories and techniques that were known at the time. And Pablo Picasso mastered them all under the tutelage of his father at an early age. So by the time he was 20, 21 years old, he had this identity as being a great traditional master like his father. He had exceeded his father and in ability, clearly, but he was of that ilk. But at some point, very early in his career, he just kind of threw that identity off and he just stopped hiring himself out to people who wanted beautiful portraits and beautiful landscapes. And he started to explore this whole world of abstract modern art. And for the second half of his life, and it really wasn't an equal half, for the second part of his life, which was 70 years, he lived to be 90, He got increasingly experimental. His work became increasingly abstract, bizarre perhaps, until by the time he was in his late 80s and the very beginning of his 90s, he was drawing very rudimentary pieces of art. Now there's a question about Picasso that we can only speculate about. We can never really answer this question. But it's what did his father think of all this? You know, his father was a traditional artist who taught Picasso all the skills and techniques and trained him and presumably did a good job because by the time Picasso was a teenager, he was painting as well as Rembrandt. So what did he think when Picasso basically spent 
the second part of his life, breaking all the conventions and all the rules and techniques that he had taught him. We don't know, of course, but we can speculate. And I'm going to speculate that he was a little disappointed. I think Picasso's own father was a little disappointed when in his 20s he began painting people with blue and green for their skin tones. I think his father was disappointed when in Picasso's 30s and 40s, Picasso refused to paint anything that didn't have a square or a triangle-like edge to it. I'm sure he would have been disappointed had he been alive. During Picasso's later life, when Picasso began to paint pictures of women with two eyes on one side of their face and noses pointed the wrong way, you know, on newsprint and, and paper with crayon. And did any of that bother Picasso himself? Did he worry about his father's reactions, perceived or otherwise? Was there a little voice inside Picasso's head as he was painting portraits of women with green faces or as he began to be the ultimate cubist? Was there a voice inside his head saying, what are you doing, Pablo? What is wrong with you? This is not how you were trained. This is not who you are. I have no proof, but I suspect there was a little voice inside Pablo Picasso's head saying just that. I think Picasso had a little voice like that because I think we all have a little voice like that. We all have this sense of identity given to us by someone else that clamors in our head unceasingly forever throughout our life. Because all of us during the first half of our life are told and instructed and conditioned on what to feel, how to act, what to think about ourselves, what to think about others, our position in life, our potential. And this can come from teachers. It can come from our religion, our church, our school, our culture, parents. But but it's all like this big Petri dish, and we're just sort of you know growing organically in it. We're not really choosing anything. We're just kind of being shaped, given a script, given an identity. And all of this comes together. And it forms this little voice in our head. And this little voice is constantly talking to us, reacting, responding, judging everything that we do. Some people call this little voice the ego. It's a popular term right now, particularly in Eastern thought or New Age spirituality. It's a guy named Shirzad Shamanin who wrote a book about positive thinking who calls that little voice the judge. But however you want to think about that little voice, it's not us. It's the product of our conditioning. It's operating off this script that we've been given by someone else. It's defending an identity that was imposed on us. And that sounds like a harsh term. I don't mean that in a harsh way. But something that was produced out of the Petri dish, if you will, opposed to something that we choose for ourselves. Unless anybody get too freaked out by this. This happens to everybody who's ever been born, ever. So don't get too alarmed. All of us have an ego or a judge or whatever this voice is. And we're all responding to this voice in some way. We're trying to please this little voice or we're rebelling against this little voice. We're reacting to it. We're trying to ignore it. We're trying to repress it. Sometimes we disappoint that little voice. Sometimes it drives us to do things that we are disappointed in or ashamed of ourselves. And if you think you don't got one of these little voices, you're wrong. You do. 
And if you think that you're the one who's chosen what this little voice says, you're also wrong. You don't choose. This has been given to you or imposed on you or formed in you or conditioned, however you want to think about it. But you didn't make it. Nonetheless, you do have to deal with it. And that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to do that by talking about two extremes. At one extreme is a prophet. At the other extreme is a fatherless convert who lives in my ward. The prophet I want to talk about is Heber J. Grant, the man who I believe is responsible for the modern Mormon identity. Some people attribute modern Mormon identity to David O. McKay, but I don't think that. I think Heber J. Grant is the one who laid the foundations for modern Mormon identity because Heber J. Grant did two things. One, he slammed the door permanently shut on polygamy. And two, he made observance of the word of wisdom mandatory to get into the temple. Now we like to think that polygamy ended in 1890 with the Wilford Woodruff Manifesto. And as an official matter, that may be true, but it kind of continued in secret on the fringes in Mexico and in Canada and in the U.S. kind of underground. And this was because at the time of the manifesto, nobody was really sure if we were really getting rid of polygamy or if we were just kind of suspending it. Or maybe we were keeping it around for the really, really worthy, for the special people. Nobody really was sure. Even in the hierarchy of the church, there was confusion. So while the manifesto came out and we told everyone we were going to stop performing polygamous unions, wink, wink, nod, nod, nonetheless... The idea of Mormons as this weird group of polygamists running around competing with each other on the number of wives they've had, well, that that image continued both outside and within the church. But by 1935, Heber J. Grant had had enough, and he demanded an oath of allegiance from all members of the church. And this oath of allegiance included an explicit renunciation of polygamy. So Heber J. Grant was basically asking everyone in the church to raise their hand and say, no more polygamy, no matter what, secret, special cases, or otherwise. And he enforced this by excommunicating anybody who wouldn't take this oath. And there were a group who, who refused. I mean, there were some people who said, forget it. We're going we're gonna to keep doing this. Shore Creek, Arizona comes to mind. But as far as official, proper Mormonism was concerned, polygamy was over. And from that point on, Mormon identity has been divorced, no pun intended, from polygamy. From that point on, polygamists were the weirdos, the renegades, the apostates, the outlaws. The Mormons, the proper Mormons, were family-centered people. Traditional family values, not this weird polygamy stuff. And since that time, for us Mormons... We go to great pains to explain to our friends, no, we're really not polygamous. No, that was a long time. No, and we have all this, this whole spiel we give people. We've come up with all sorts of weird excuses to explain it away. Oh, we were trying to build the kingdom and oh, it was just for a little, there are all these women going around who didn't have blah, 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 blah. You know, the fact of the matter is we don't want to be identified with it. Done. So the little voice in the back of the heads of all the Mormons from Heber J. Grant forward never asked the question, hmm, should I go get another wife? to improve my status as a faithful, dedicated Mormon building the kingdom. 
the ego or, or the judge or whatever that voice is stopped asking that question inside the heads of Mormons. Thanks in part to Heber J. Grant. Now, the second major change to Mormon identity was making observance of the word of wisdom mandatory. Up until the time of Heber J. Grant, people observed the word of wisdom, but then there are a lot of people who didn't. And again, there was, you know, a range of views, even among the hierarchy. No one was quite sure how to apply this rule. And so in 1921, Heber J. Grant made it official. No more coffee, no more tea, no more beer, no more wine, no more cigarettes. None of that stuff. If you do that stuff, no getting into the temple. So in a span of 10 years, Mormons went from being kind of a fringy, smoking, whiskey-drinking group of bearded polygamists to being a group of traditional family value-oriented folks who were teetotalers and never smoked. Observance of their word or wisdom became a massive part of the Mormon voice in our heads. You know, we have all felt this in regards to ourselves and others, right? I mean, as we look at ourselves and others in our community, no matter what problems anyone's experiencing, we know there's a real problem with their Mormon identity if they start drinking openly. That's when the little voice in our head really goes off. You can cheat on your spouse and bezel money, be a cruel gossiper, and you may have need of repentance, sure, but once you start drinking openly, you, you have left the tribe. Well, this part of Mormon identity can be attributed to Heber J. Grant as well. Now, what's really interesting about this modern Mormon identity is that Heber J. Grant, the man who laid the foundations for it, had a completely different identity for himself. What our church books, which extol Heber J. Grant as a man of perseverance, which he was, but what they leave out is, is that Heber J. Grant himself was a polygamist. He married his first wife in 1877, and then he married two more on back-to-back -back days in 1884. So the man who drove the final nails into the coffin of Mormon polygamy was himself a polygamist. Now, I want to be clear. He was a polygamist pre-manifesto. You know, so he wasn't sneaking around in the shadows, you know, in Mexico or in secret ceremonies in Canada or something doing this. Rather, he was doing it during a time when that's how you measured a good Mormon. When Heber J. Grant came of age, all of the leadership, all of the prominent Mormons were polygamous, including his father, who was in the first presidency of Brigham Young, and was called Brigham Young's sledgehammer. And his own father had said things like, if the prophet desires your wife, you should give your wife to the prophet. So this is the milieu, to use an obnoxious academic term, that Heber J. Grant grew up in. That's the Petri dish or the conditioning or however you want to think about it that gave him his script that informed the little voice in his head. During Heber J. Grant's formative years, the way you could tell if someone was really committed to the cause was count how many wives they had. And if it was one or less, well, their testimony might be in peril. Those same church books leave out another interesting fact about Heber J. Grant, which is that he was an alcoholic himself. Now, that may be a little bit too strong. He may not have been an alcoholic. But in his earlier years, he drank so much he thought he was an alcoholic. He feared he was an alcoholic. 
As a young man, he was quite skinny, and he was trying to get some insurance. And the insurance company wanted him to gain a little weight, so they sent him to a doctor, and the doctor's prescription was to drink beer. A Mormon doctor, presumably, so Heber J. did that. He began drinking beer to put on some weight at first. He didn't like the taste, but then he acquired a taste for beer. And after a while, he found himself drinking four, five, sometimes six glasses of beer a day. Now, I attended a Big Ten university, and I have witnessed a lot of beer consumption by others, of course. And I can tell you, six beers a day, a six-pack of beer a day is a lot. If you drink that much beer, most people would say you're an alcoholic. But when it came time to make Heber J. Grant a stake president at age 22, by the way, or to induct him into the Quorum of Twelve Apostles at age 25, this alcoholism, perceived or otherwise, was was a non-issue. And why should it be? Brigham Young drank brandy. John Taylor drank. So whereas now, it's, it is the litmus test, almost, the exclusive litmus test applied to Mormons. At the time of Heber J. Grant, it was it was just... An afterthought. The guy thought he was an alcoholic when he was made an apostle. You know, so the identity Heber J. Grant acquired during his formative years was about as diametrically opposed to the identity markers he left behind as they could be. You know, so how on earth did that happen without his head exploding? And, and I phrase it that way quite intentionally, because when you start messing with people's identities... People go crazy because it's so fundamental. That's because the mind and the ego are clever and they'll do anything to maintain something as fundamental as identity. Yet it seems to be a critical part of progress. Part of life, I think, is confronting, considering, and changing parts of our identity that aren't working, that don't work that are holding us down. And the reason I believe that is because your first identity, the identity you get during your formative years, that identity is given to you by someone else, your family, your church, your culture, your school. That identity grows organically, and you're not choosing it. It's just kind of happening to you. It doesn't mean it's all bad or it's terrible. or It just means it's not consciously chosen by you. Progress and growth, on the other hand, only start happening when you do start choosing for yourself. And here's the secret. Most people never get to the point where they start choosing for themselves because they never get to the point where they realize that their identity was given to them. Most people believe their entire lives, the little voice in their head, the judge, the ego, whatever you want to call it, is them, themselves. And most of us spend our times defending the identity we've been given. And if that identity is a destructive identity, we use phrases like keeping it real or being authentic. And if the identity we've given is a holier-than-thou identity, we use words like righteousness and maintaining standards. Now, keeping it real and being authentic and being righteous and maintaining standards as isolated things are fine. But if you're using any of those terms to avoid the process of examining your own self and choosing for yourself what's right and what's wrong, then you're, you're stuck in the past. You're stuck 
living a script given to you by someone else. I'm sure Heber J. Grant struggled with this like everyone else in in life does. Like I'm sure Picasso did when he started branching out on his own, started using the techniques he was taught in his own way. I mean, I imagine it was pretty difficult for the son of Brigham's sledgehammer living in an environment where polygamy was the path to never-ending kingdoms for the righteous as well as the way to gain status in this world, I imagine mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, it was pretty hard for him to say, no more polygamy ever, which is what he did. I mean, people quibble about that. They say, oh, well, there's still the legacy of polygamy. Oh, we slip it, but, but we don't. We have done everything we can since Heber J. Grant to distance ourselves from the polygamous weirdos. Instead, spending all of our mental energy trying to prove to everyone how conservative we are and how clean our lifestyle is. Clean and pure, free of drink, smoke, any contaminants. In order to get us to that place, Heber J. Grant had to basically reevaluate and abandon the identity he had been given by his church. Now, I know at this juncture, my literalist and more fundamentalist friends are saying things like, now just wait a second. This is, has nothing to do with identity. It was a revelation of the Lord. He was the prophet after all. Well, my literalist and fundamentalist friends, I'm glad you brought that up. Because one of the ways you counter a destructive yet unceasing voice in your head, the ego, is to turn to God for some revelation and some strength. And in the process, you learn about a more fundamental identity of yourself as a being of light and truth and love and grace. And only then does the voice in your head, the ego, the judge, whatever you want to call it, only then does it seem really small and puny by comparison. So yeah, I'm fine with that explanation that it was revelation, but we can all get revelation. We can all learn things about ourselves that are bigger than the, than the voice in our head that was given to us by someone else. And I want to illustrate that point by talking about a 17-year-old kid in my ward, a kid that I home teach. He's never met his father. He was raised by his grandmother because his own mother was a drug addict who abandoned him. She's a woman who lives on the streets to this day, has mental illness, of course, he and his grandmother live in a tough part of town. Funds are limited, to say the least. It is a daily struggle. He is surrounded by people in similar situations. But this kid is not a victim. His environment, his school, his mother, the Petri dish in which he has evolved has given him a script that says he is a victim. He is doomed to failure has no future, but he has learned in his early years to look beyond that deadening voice in his own head, a voice that was put in his head by someone else. He has turned to a higher power. The love and light and guidance he re receives from this higher power makes this ego thing going on inside his head seem puny and insignificant by comparison. Not that it's gone away, and not that he's perfect, he's got his days and his moments. But nine hours out of ten, he thinks of himself as the eagle scout that he is. He thinks of the path that he's on as divinely inspired. 
divinely orchestrated for his good as something to give him a point of comparison moving forward so that he'll be able to distinguish good from bad, light from dark. No, he's not perfect, but he has been perfect in one critical way. He has never complained. I've never heard him gripe about his origins, about what he doesn't have or why he's not going to. He has never complained a single time. The kid is 17. He's, he's at that point in his life. You know, he's going to go to college. He's going to move forward and build on the promptings of this higher, more beautiful, loving voice from God. Cause that voice and compared to the voice someone stuck inside his head is huge and mighty and all seeing and all powerful. No, I don't think it was harder for Heber J. Grant than it was for this kid, of course, but I don't think it was easier for him either. They both had to face it the same way we all do. We all have to choose what's going to work for us, what voices we're going to listen to. We have to be aware of the, of the little voice, the ego that was put in our heads by the Petri dish, the conditionings of our youth, of our formative years. We have to hear what that voice is telling us and decide among all the things it's telling us what we're going to respond to. We need a bigger voice, a stronger voice from our creator that makes that little voice seem so puny and insignificant. And if we don't do that, then someone else is running our life. And realizing their plans through us. In my mind, this brings a deeper understanding of the verse in Matthew 16. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now there's a danger at this juncture. To interpret this entire podcast to mean that you ought to just chuck everything you've ever been taught. It's garbage. Now, if you've heard any of my other podcasts besides this episode, you know that that's really not what I believe. I don't believe that. When you're at the point of realizing you've been conditioned and you're living someone else's script, it's it's tempting to get angry and to feel like you ought to chuck it. But don't do that. Even Picasso didn't do that. Rather, be proactive and choose and build upon all that's good and weed out and ignore and eliminate what's probably not working. That seems so simple on one level, doesn't it? But it can be a lot harder in practice. If you've got a bad habit, for example, and you're associating with other people who have the same bad habit, and you wake up one day and say, you know, this is a bad habit. This is because of bad choices, or this is the product of my youth, or this was given to me as part of a script that I don't want to live anymore. Well, when you do that, it threatens all the other people around you who've got the same script, have the same bad habit. So it can get pretty messy. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, when you start messing with people's identities, they go crazy. Heber J. Grant faced this when he slammed the door shut on polygamy. The Short Creek, Arizona branch refused to sign the pledge. They thought he was a fallen prophet. 
And they went out and started the FLDS church, the fundamentalists, the polygamists that continue to this day. So becoming enlightened sure seems simple in theory, but it's not. And it also doesn't mean chucking lock, stock, and barrel everything you've ever learned. You know, Picasso built on what he was given. So did Heber J. Grant. He built on things that he had been taught. And part of examining the script that you've been given is to keep what does work, to keep what is profound and beautiful, but to choose to keep it. That's the important thing. And if you start wondering what's worth keeping and what's not, don't forget there's a bigger voice out there, a brighter voice, a voice that comes from someone who loves you way more than the people who conditioned you do. Not that the people who raised us are so bad, just that the people who raised us were flawed too. Well, when you remember that, phrases like, Seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you, start to make a little more sense, don't they? And no one's knocking and no one's seeking if they're just living the script given to them by someone else. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Send me your comments and questions to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or visit me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.